Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's really a privilege to be able to uh, continue our series this afternoon, which we called Simply Jesus. And previously, we've been looking, haven't we, at John's account of Jesus's life and the seven signs that point to who Jesus is, as he shows power over sickness, the natural world, and even death. And as we saw last week, the next half of the series is all about what Jesus came to do. As we look at the events of the last week of his life that led to the cross. So really this part of the series is an invitation to re-engage with the Easter story. Both emotionally and spiritually. To slow down and look again at the glory of Jesus. And last week, Becky did an amazing job of walking us through how Mary anointed Jesus at her brother Lazarus' house, and in doing so, prepared him for burial. She knew what was coming, and she gave everything in devotion to Jesus. So what we're going to do today is pick up the story as it continues the next day, as Jesus makes his way to the city of Jerusalem. And as we will see, is enthusiastically welcomed by a large crowd. So we're going to get straight into the passage. So if I can encourage you to turn to John chapter 12. And we're going to read from uh, verses 12 to 19. So it says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. When I was 11... I had my breakout performance as an actor. Now, it didn't last long, but I was cast as one of the main parts in the school play, which was an adaptation of the Easter story called The Man from Galilee. Now, I was a shy little thing and had never really stood up and spoken in front of an audience before. But my teacher obviously saw something in me, and she cast me as one of the soloists. So I had to sing this song all about how 
God's people were waiting for the Messiah to come. Now, at the time, I had really a limited understanding of what that actually meant. But as I've re-engaged with the story as I've prepared for today, it reminded me of this song and how God's people were longing for the promised Messiah from the line of King David who would save the Jewish nation. Now, up until this point, Jesus had been traveling around rural villages, making stops on the way, as we heard last week when he went to have dinner at Lazarus's house. And then, verse 12 tells us he was making his way to the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, which was the place where the presence of God dwelt. And it was Passover, which is why there was this large crowd gathered, getting ready for the festival. Now, what we need to remember is that Jerusalem at the time was under Roman occupation. There's an irony for the Jews here. They are celebrating a festival which remembered how God had miraculously intervened to free them from slavery in Egypt. Yet their current experience was one of living in a land without their own rule and reign. They were living under oppressive Roman rule, so understandably, their attentions, they're looking for breakthrough, they're waiting for things to change. I imagine they felt like life was on a bit of a knife edge. And then, in comes Jesus, making his way to the holy city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. There are three groups of people in the passage who John describes witness this. Firstly, there's the crowd who readily welcome Jesus, waving their palm branches and shouting quotations from the Psalms. They're the ones we usually remember in this story. Then there's the disciples who, to be honest, seem a bit confused and perplexed by what's going on. Verse 16 tells us they did not understand all this. And then there's the Pharisees who make this somewhat humorous overstatement of, look how the whole world has gone after him in verse 19, which actually reveals something of their exasperation and contempt towards Jesus. The way these three groups of people respond to Jesus tells us something about what they are expecting him to do. So I want us to look at these groups and the expectations they have as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the cross is before him. And then we're going to think about how that might apply to us. So firstly, how does the crowd respond to Jesus? Well, the crowd that John tells us in verse 12 had come for the festival would have been enormous. Jews would have gathered from all over Palestine and every part of the Mediterranean world to go to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Some travelled up with Jesus from Bethany and the surrounding villages, as verse 17 tells us, 
whilst others went out from the city to meet him. Verse 13. And up until this point, the people's morale had been low. It had been a long time since the glory days when King David ruled Israel. But now, all these years later, their hope of the promised Messiah has again been stirred. They wave palm branches to welcome Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem. And, you know, this wasn't just a random act. They didn't just grab the first thing they could find. Palms were a recognised symbol of the Jewish state. They appeared on Jewish coins that were made at the time of the Roman occupation, and they symbolised victory over an enemy. The crowd thought that Jesus was about to bring national deliverance from Israel's political enemies, the Romans. They shout out, echoing scripture in the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, which literally means save or give us salvation now. And then the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would have been understood as a reference to the coming one, the Messiah, the one they'd heard about in scripture, who was going to save them. And then the next words they shout out, blessed is the king of Israel. These are not part of the psalm, but it shows how they are understanding what is going on. You see, the crowd welcomes Jesus as their king. This is what they've been waiting for. Here is a new king who is going to usher in a new kingdom. They think he's going to save them from the harsh and deadly rule of the Romans. They're expecting him to use his amazing powers to resist the political and military leaders of the time and lead the nation to independence. After all, John tells us in verse 17, a lot of them had seen firsthand how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Surely overthrowing the Romans was nothing compared to that. This was their expectation as they welcomed Jesus as their king. But there are clues that not all may be as they're expecting. Jesus is not in military clothes. He's riding a donkey, not a war horse. And he's got a motley crew of disciples following along behind him, rather than a great army. I wonder what we would have been thinking if we were in the crowd that day. So what about the next group of people who were there? How do the disciples respond to Jesus? They were the closest to Jesus. They'd done life with him. They'd witnessed the miracles, and yet their response on this day was one of confusion. Verse 16, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. What must that have been like? They were the ones in closest proximity to Jesus. They were in his inner circle, and yet they just don't understand what's going on. 
why is Jesus riding on a donkey? What's he doing? Why are all the people waving branches and shouting about the king of Israel? I wonder if the disciples felt left out, excluded, like they'd missed something or got the wrong end of the stick. And then there's the Pharisees. Their response shows us that the kingship of Jesus, which is declared on this first Palm Sunday, is divisive. As we've seen, many welcomed him with enthusiasm, although in the end, many of the same people who hailed Jesus as their king would call for his crucifixion a few days later. But even in this moment of apparent triumph, there are those leading the way in plotting his downfall. The Pharisees want Jesus gone. They say to each other in verse 19, see, this is getting us nowhere. Jesus is unpredictable and he's disrupting their carefully ordered religious systems. Worst of all, he's popular. The whole world has gone after him, verse 19. For all three groups that day, the crowd, the disciples, the Pharisees, their expectations don't match who Jesus is and what he does. For the Pharisees, Jesus is way more popular than they were expecting. For the crowd, however, this is not the king they were expecting. Their vision of a great military leader who will save them from the Romans is turned upside down as Jesus comes humbly, riding on a donkey, declaring a rule of peace. Here is the king that Zechariah prophesied about in the Old Testament as John references in verse 15. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And if we look at Zechariah's prophecy in full, it continues, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. That's Zechariah 9, verse 10. Jesus is king. But to express it, he must disappoint the nationalistic expectations of his fellow Jews. His kingdom is one that will proclaim peace to the nations, that will uphold the rights of the vulnerable and the oppressed, and that has no geographical or political boundaries. The crowd shout out, King of Israel, which is true, but he is more than that, for his reign will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. The crowd expect a sword, but Jesus has his sights on a cross of sacrifice. And so, as a result of this mismatch of expectations, many in the crowd go on to turn away 
once they realised Jesus wasn't the kind of king they were expecting him to be. Once they saw that he didn't do the things that they thought he was going to do. And what about the disciples? I mean, you'd think they'd be able to bring some clarity to what was going on. Some reassurance that Jesus was carrying out his father's plan to bring redemption to the whole world. But even they did not understand all this. John tells us that it was only after Jesus' death and resurrection that the penny dropped for them. Only then did they understand Jesus' purpose, what he came to do. There was a big gap in the middle when they just didn't get it. Verse 16 continues, only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It was only after Jesus had died and rose again that their eyes were opened to his glory. So, what about us, Jubilee? What is our response when our expectations of Jesus and what he can do in our lives don't match the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Like the crowd, when we're expecting one thing, but it seems like Jesus has another plan. Or when, like the disciples, we just don't understand what God's doing. When life gets hard, or we don't get given what we think we deserve. You know, God, this isn't what I was expecting. I thought you'd protect me from this. I thought you'd answer my prayer in the way I was expecting you to. When life looks different to what we are expecting, it is so easy to lose hope. And even to withdraw from Jesus and distance our hearts from him, just like many in the crowd went on to do. In moments of delay, difficulties or disappointment, that's where our faith is really put to the test. John Maxwell says, disappointment is the gap that exists between expectation and reality. Let me say that again. Disappointment is the gap that exists between expectation and reality. We have a choice to bravely face that gap. Because when we experience the gap between what we expect God to do and the reality of our current circumstances, that's when trust is most needed. When we are waiting, when we're hurting, when we're grieving, when, like the disciples, we just don't understand what God's doing. And, you know, it's in those times that the enemy will try to lie to us. He'll go after the revelation of what we know to be true about who God is and about who God says we are. We might know in our heads that Jesus is still king despite our circumstances, 
that he is in control, that he's good, that he's got a plan. But when we can't see what he's doing in our lives or in our world, it's easy to grow weary and to doubt his goodness because we feel like our circumstances tell us otherwise. You see, disappointment is a problem because it directly attacks our faith and our expectation of what God can do. So we end up not expecting too much because we know what it feels like to be disappointed. We may stop praying for breakthrough or healing or for miracles because it it just feels too painful when we don't see the answers come in the way that we think they will. As I was preparing for today, I was thinking about the last couple of years and how for all of us there's been so much to process. In so many ways, life hasn't looked how any of us expected and still doesn't. What I've come to realise is that the starting point for facing the disappointment gap is not to withdraw from Jesus, but rather to go to him and to get really honest and to tell him exactly how I'm feeling without filtering anything. He he knows how I'm feeling anyway, so nothing I say is going to take him by surprise. God is big enough to deal with our questions, our anger, our hurt. And the Psalms are a great place to start as they give us a biblical model of expressing our heart to God. Psalm 10 verse 1 says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or how about these verses from Psalm 63? My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. You can't get more honest than that. If you are in that disappointment gap today between what you're expecting God to do and the reality of what life is like right now. Can I encourage you to commit to taking some time this week to get really honest with God, just to get it all out of your system, to tell him out loud in your own words exactly how you feel. Because if we don't give voice to what we're feeling, then the emotion and pain of disappointment just gets stuck. And the truth of the goodness of God and his plan for our lives just stays as information in our head rather than revelation that impacts our heart and changes us from the inside. Only once we've got really honest with God and expressed our disappointment can the truth about who God is go deep, even in the middle of circumstances that we don't understand. The truth that he is good 
and his love endures forever. That he is for us. That he sings over us and rejoices. That he's faithful and that he keeps all of his promises to us. That he fights for us. That he's on the throne and he is in control. Ultimately, God is a choice. There are times we trust God because of what we can see, but there are also times when we have to trust God in spite of what we see. When we must choose to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. That's Proverbs 3 verse 5. And here's where I want us to end today. Because a really crucial part of facing the disappointment gap is laying down our right to understand. This is really important because we often believe the lie that if we could just understand why things are happening, then we'd know peace. But the Bible promises a different kind of peace. The peace that goes beyond understanding. Listen to Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we lay down our right to understand, when we say, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you anyway, that's when the peace of God rushes in. That's when we can say, God is God and I am not. If I don't understand something God is doing, it doesn't mean there's a problem with God. It just means I don't get it, at least not right now. Remember the disciples they had to wait until Jesus was glorified before they realised all the things that had been written about him and what had been done to him. So let me conclude. In the end, God's plan for our life always exceeds our expectations. Pain, sorrow, disappointment do not get the final word. Jesus fought a much bigger battle than the crowd expected on that first Palm Sunday. When they cried out, Hosanna, thinking he was going to save them from the Romans, they couldn't have imagined the magnitude of the salvation that Jesus would offer. As he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that day, he knew where he was headed. He knew the crowd's welcome and triumph would soon turn to cries of crucify him. And yet, he had his sight set firmly on the cross as he prepared to take upon himself the sin of the whole world in order to save us from the consequences of sin that separate us from God. But he also knew Easter Sunday was coming 
that sin and death would be defeated once and for all and that he would be raised to life and seated with his Father in heaven. If we've put our trust in Jesus, this is true for us too. And so this is why we can trust him. There is always hope. Hope is not just a milestone we're working towards or an emotion we should feel in desperate times. Hope is someone we hold on to and in whom our confidence is. And his name is Jesus. He came not only to bring hope, but to be our living hope. He's even better than we think. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, his plan for our life goes way beyond our current circumstances and what we can see right now. So I'd love us just to take a moment now to respond. And it, it might be that you feel stirred that you actually you want to talk to God about some disappointment that you're carrying right now. Maybe you want to offer that to him today. It might be that you're in the place of wanting to declare the goodness of God over your life again. Or it might be that actually you're in that place like the disciples, I just don't understand. Maybe for you it's about laying down your right to understand again today. And telling him that you're going to trust him despite your current circumstances. So I'd love to invite you to stand if you're able. And I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us again. This is just an opportunity for you to just get really honest with Jesus. Just to come and offer yourself to him again today. And then in a moment, Pam and the team are going to lead us in a song of response. But I just encourage you, just hold up your hands to Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we just say, you are so welcome. Would you come and fill us afresh? Come and minister to us. Come and reveal the Father's love for us again today. And we just want to offer all that we are to you again. Thank you that you know it all. Thank you that we don't have to explain anything to you. And just in this moment of quiet now, we just ask that you would come. Come and make yourself known to us. Just afresh. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Jesus, we love you. And we'd rather do life with you than without you. 
we turn our hearts to you again. We say you are king, you are Lord, you're on the throne, you're in control and we trust you. Even when we don't understand, we trust you and we worship you Jesus.